Ed Trusted, Critical Race Theory Craze That's Sweeping the Nation. Episode 4, The Unbearable Discomfort of History. I feel dissonance when my group is implicated in something so admittedly horrible as the Tulsa massacre. So it must not be true. If I'm a worthy person, if my group is a worthy group, then this information is just not true. Or it just wasn't as big as some people are saying it was. It wasn't that important. And I deny it. And I resent any effort to tell me otherwise or to teach my children in school otherwise. Hi, I'm Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high-quality education, no matter what their background. This is the fourth episode of a new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we're talking about the accusation that the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children, namely critical race theory. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to move in some way to restrict the instruction schools provide children, according to an analysis by Education Week. Some specifically mention critical race theory as forbidden. In our opening episode, we laid out many of the issues with Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, a scholar who brought the analysis of critical race theory to the field of education. In our second episode, we spoke with legal scholar Matthew Shaw and ACLU attorney Emerson Sykes about the many legal challenges posed by the laws being passed. In our third episode, we talked with teachers to try to assess what is actually being taught in classrooms. In this episode, we're going to discuss something that I suspect is behind some of the agitation about what is being taught in schools, and that is the shock people feel when they learn something that doesn't square with their prior understanding of reality. That shock is really uncomfortable and is known as cognitive dissonance. Much of the legislation being proposed and passed specifically says that teachers should not cause students discomfort on account of their race. But learning about our history means learning about some very uncomfortable truths. And for a lot of people, white people in particular, that can mean readjusting what we think about our country. So today we're going to talk about one of those truths that a lot of people find uncomfortable and then learn about how people react to cognitive dissonance and why that's important. We have an amazing panel to talk about this. Annalisa Bruner is a writer and editor and, for the purposes of this conversation, the great-granddaughter of Mary Jones Parrish, a witness of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Jones worked as a journalist to gather the accounts of other witnesses. Her account, The Nation Must Awake, was reissued this past spring for the 100th anniversary of the massacre, and Annalisa wrote a beautiful afterword. In the interests of full disclosure, Annalisa is a former Ed Trust colleague and a friend of mine. Welcome, Annalisa. Thank you, Karen, for having me. I appreciate being here. Dr. Joel Cooper is a professor of psychology at Princeton University. One of the topics he explores in his research is cognitive dissonance and how people resolve it. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Glenn Adams is professor of psychology at the University of Kansas. One of the topics he has researched is something called the Marley Hypothesis. I had never heard of the Marley Hypothesis until I started doing research for this episode and it seems incredibly pertinent to this moment. Welcome, Dr. Adams. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Annalisa, I want to, I want you to take us back a ways to when your father bequeathed you the treasured family heirloom of your great-grandmother's published book, describing her experience and that of many of her fellow Tulsans during the massacre of 1921. What was your initial reaction when you read it? Karen, my initial reaction was one of absolute disbelief um, that such an important piece of our family's history and American history had been concealed from me within my own family. Um, I was uh, taken aback to understand that um, people could go through life never in their intimate family moments 
mentioning such a horrendous event, such an important event, uh, such a life-altering event. How do people walk around every day functioning to to their greatest capacity in any event um, and and carry such a burden, such a secret and um, never mention it? I, I, I was stunned from that perspective. From the public perspective, I was devastated to learn that uh, this group of uh, very um, successful and committed citizens uh, had been subjected on American soil to such a, um, an event, uh, the murderous uh, rage of a vis- vigilante mob, uh, something that uh, Dr. Scott Ellsworth, a noted Tulsa scholar, has like- likened to Kristallnacht. I, I am assuming our listeners know the story more or less of the Tulsa massacre, but it was one of a whole series of dozens of, um, you could call it pogroms, uh, that occurred in sort of from about 1919 to about 1930, I guess. When you talk about the silence within your family, it really makes me think of the uh, families I grew up around where there were Holocaust um, survivors who never spoke of it, who never spoke of the Holocaust to their children or grandchildren. And it created this weird, secretive, um, uh, you know, uh, this big secret that nobody talked about. Um, so, so Dr. Cooper, um, can, you, can you talk about the cognitive dissonance that white people felt or feel when they learn about something like the Tulsa massacre? Uh, Yes. I mean, it seems so hard for us, um, looking from today's perspective, to conceive that we'd be able or even willing to um, deny that Tulsa took place or belittle the importance of what happened in Tulsa. And yet we've done that. We've seen in the the past... um, few months and, and perhaps few years that um, white individuals um, belittle uh, the experience and are willing to uh, remove it from or not include it in curricula, not teach it, not talk about it. Um, and it's hard for us to conceive that that is, um, that, 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 that is true, but it's not it's not so uh, surprising once we understand that there exists in all of us this um, avoidance of something we call cognitive dissonance. It's in our psychological makeup. Um, it's something that we, it's a phenomenon that we try very hard to deny and to avoid. And I want to explain that a little bit because I think it'll help us understand how uh, too many white people are willing to trivialize the importance of something like Tulsa. Um, um, so let, let me just say that cognitive dissonance refers to a phenomenon that we all experience, and we experience it quite often on trivial matters and important matters. Um, but it's the idea that we feel uncomfortable when we come face to face with the fact that not all of our ideas and emotions and behaviors are consistent with each other. We harbor inconsistencies. Um, that have the potential to cause us distress, um, particularly in inconsistencies that involve our own selves. When we do something that's inconsistent with some view of ourselves, that creates tension, that creates stress. So imagine for, I mean, it's not a trivial example, but it's not a racial example, but if you'll permit me to move to a different, a, a different kind of situation, imagine that you grew up believing that smoking was a good idea. But, um, uh, you, you, you want to smoke, it relaxes you, um, it relieves stress, and so forth. And so you smoked. And then imagine that you began hearing that, in fact, smoking was not a good idea. There are studies that shows, show that it causes cancer. There are studies that show that it causes birth defects, emphysema, and so on. What you're hearing is inconsistent with your prior belief system and your behavior. It doesn't fit. Now, for clarity, when I want to call these ideas these, these uh, thoughts, these images, these feelings, these behaviors, want to call them cognitions. 
is in the field of cognitive dissonance. That's what the cognitive stands for, is anything we have an idea about, whether it's a feeling, a thought, or, or, or something that we are actually doing, like a behavior. And when they don't fit, we call it dissonance. And here's what we need to know about cognitive dissonance. It's experienced as a real negative emotion. It's unpleasant, it's uncomfortable. And more than 60 years ago, Leon Festinger, who introduced cognitive dissonance to the academic and uh, academic world back then, um, said that it's a discomfort that we can't live with. We have to find ways to reduce it and to make ourselves feel more comfortable. We can do lots of things. We can distort our cognitions, we can change our cognitions, we can deny them, or we can trivialize them. We can say they're just not important. So the smoker I talked about, what can he or she do? Well, she could stop smoking, or she could deny the validity of those ideas that don't comport with her smoking. Um, she could say it's not true that smoking causes lung cancer. The studies are flawed. They were financed by the candy industry or the alcohol industry, or people who have a vested interest in my not smoking. And once I do that, I can continue doing what I wanted to do without the discomfort of cognitive dissonance. So how does this apply to the Tulsa massacre? Um, in many ways, it shouldn't. Um, but consider it this way. Uh, let, let's assume that you're in a group, you're, you're a privileged white male. And let's assume that you think of yourself as basically fair-minded. You think of yourself as basically egalitarian. You never treated people of color, you think, any different from the way you would have treated a white person. And Tulsa is something that you didn't do. Why should it cause dissonance? But it does. And, and that's the rub. And that's what I, if I can just spend a, another moment, I want to explain why I think it causes cognitive dissonance. Uh, each of us is an individual with our own individual heritage, with our, uh, our own unique set of parents, our unique uh, uh, characteristics as, as we you know, go through our family life. But we're also members, we're also members of important social groups, and those groups matter. They're part of the fabric of who we are, and they're part of how we define ourselves which we do in large part because of group membership. Some groups are voluntary. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but some groups aren't. My skin is white. I was raised in New York. I'm part of these groups. They all serve as integral parts of who I am. And now if you tell me that my group, that is in this particular case, white males, made life hell for people of color in the antebellum South, or that my group burned down the black community of Tulsa, Oklahoma, this just doesn't comport with my view of who I am because myself is anchored to my group. So to return to my previous example, just as I feel dissonance when I realize that uh, I smoke despite evidence that it can harm me, I feel dissonance when my group is implicated in something so admittedly horrible as the Tulsa massacre. So it must not be true. If I'm a worthy person, if my group is a worthy group, then this information is just not true. Or it just wasn't as big as some people are saying it was. It wasn't that important. And I deny it. And I resent any effort to tell me otherwise or to teach my children in school otherwise. And that's the way I deal with cognitive dissonance. Um, so one more important issue that I'd like to raise is that responding to dissonance is automatic. It's not as though we put everything together in our heads consciously and say, I think I'll go for denial, or I think I'll go for trivialization, you know, that uh, I have this dilemma and here's my resolution. No, rather in our whole um, upbringing, we've come to find the easiest ways to resolve dissonance. Many times they work, and so we keep doing them. We're cognitive, what psychologists call cognitive misers. We don't like to do a lot of extra work. Um, so we grab onto the easiest, most frequently used technique, like denying unpleasant, inconsistent information. And that is what we need to change. We're always going to experience cognitive dissonance when we realize that our group did some unfortunately terrible things, but we need to find a better way 
to reduce it. And hopefully that's what, you know, ultimately we'll have an opportunity to talk more about that as the conversation proceeds. Can I interject here? Yeah, I just wanted to hear what your reaction was. My reaction was that today it's it's easier to see um, how people uh, might be processing this information in a way that um, leads to denialism and things of this nature. And we see people today, uh, absolutely, they are professional denialists at the highest level of government and society, and they use that um, as a lever to, um, you know, interject their own agenda into the society at large. But with the Tulsa example, you know, values were different at that time. I mean, there was a time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the Ku Klux Klan was in charge of the government. They were proud of the murderous rampages that they carried out. Uh, and the gut and the government there, uh, local and state government, uh, they uh, imposed whatever discomfort they might have felt onto another group. And when you are empowered, when you are the predominating force within the society, you have the ability to do that. So any discomfort that you feel, you simply export that onto somebody else. It's not a matter of denialism. It's a matter of you know uh, the, the asymmetric control of resources and power and how you are able to uh, uh, shape and uh, direct and and um, foist a narrative onto others who may not be so empowered. So in the Tulsa situation, uh, you know, those people, those who survived and were still in the area, you know, they had to go back to work within the next couple of days and they had to shut up about it. They had to be quiet when they went back to their employer's home and worked in the kitchens and, and did whatever they did. Uh, you know, some were in domestic service, of course. Um, and uh, so what, what we have are, I think, you know, the, the different fingers of this whole conversation that depending on what what era we're in, uh, you know, from which side of the violence divide uh, someone is speaking, this this you know begins to uh, muddy this conversation a little bit. It's not quite as straightforward, um, uh, and, and certainly we see what's happening in the school situation and where, where people are repressing the truth uh, uh, of uh, you know historical events. And people today saying, yes, I'm not responsible. My group couldn't possibly have done this. But at that time, they were taking pictures, souvenirs uh, to show off how they had driven the Negroes out of Tulsa. So, you know, I, I think we have to be very careful about which what time period we're talking about, what the values are and, and, and the way people uh, perceive themselves uh, and whether or not that leads to, you know, true cognitive dissonance or if it's a matter of, uh, you know, uh, protecting uh, the society uh, from the truth of their own misbehavior. Yeah, I think it's completely true, and it's a and it's a very good point. Um, there exists hate. There exists oppression. Um, and when the powerful group foists itself, foists its power upon the powerless group, that is something different than I was talking about. That is that is that is hate. You can explain that hate in part by transfer of anxiety and so on to the to the minority group and just blame them for everything. Um, and, and that certainly helps us understand how Tulsa could have happened. It helps us understand a little bit of how Nazi Germany could have happened. Um, what uh, my broader perspective in my comments had to do with uh, examining the situation that we find ourselves in today, which includes, I mean, hate has not gone away. So I don't mean to deny that. I was thinking of scenes that we see on the news sometimes of school board meetings in which groups just are so angry with each other about how we are going to teach what happened in Tulsa, how we're going to teach what happened in Jim Crow. Um, and some of those people, have vested interests. Some of those people truly dislike each other, but some of those people, and I think that's the, the and, and it's this last group of people that I'm paying particular attention to, these last group of people feel that they're doing the right thing. They feel that they're analyzing the situation the way it really is, that their group is right and the other group is wrong. And where does this come from? Part of it comes 
from the way in which we deal with the dissonance that was created by that hate a hundred years ago. And and this is let's I want I want to talk with Dr. Adams for just a minute because um, Dr. Adams, this is where you kind of come in, and the Marley hypothesis comes in. If people are not fully versed in the history, they are less likely to be able to see racism and racist structures. Do I have that correct? Yeah, I mean, the basis, the basic idea of the uh, Marley hypothesis framework uh, started, the original, the study started in a kind of situation very similar to the one you described in the introduction, which is that there are uh, arguments, uh, struggles going on about uh, what's the what is the character of the United States of America? What kind of uh, story are we going to tell in the schools? Is America fundamentally uh, built on the foundation of racism? Such questions as these uh, and competing stories about the degree of uh, racism and structural racism in American society today. And it won't surprise anyone here to know that if you do surveys, public opinion surveys, for example, uh, different racial and ethnic groups vary in the extent to which they believe that there exists racism in American society. And in general, white folks relative to uh, people of color uh, tend to deny the extent of of racism. And so we were interested in this phenomenon and one of the explanations for it. So mainstream media, or maybe we should say white stream media, tended to look at this difference and begin to explain it in terms of what they thought was the deviant phenomenon that requires explanation. It's usually what we do when we have a difference, we tend to think of the thing that, that is sort of uh, noteworthy, that requires us to, to explain it, because the other thing people you know, feel as if it's just natural. So in this case, particularly in the white stream media, people look to the, to the people of color side of this difference to say, why is it that people of color and, and Black folks in particular uh, tend to see so much racism in American society? That doesn't seem to square with what we know. So they would come up with explanations like the, you know, playing the race card or some other kind of strategic move, some kind of maybe individually motivated move uh, or a, a collectively motivated move. Um, so we wanted to intervene in this uh, construction of the difference to suggest that maybe uh, the phenomenon that requires explanation is not why black folks and other people of color see racism in American society, but rather why white folks don't see racism uh, in American society. We wanted to look uh, to see if we could find like a, a quote unquote objective standard or by which we could compare tendencies to see who is more attuned to reality. So in thinking of a standard, uh, we thought, okay, well, maybe we could go with historical knowledge, take things that people generally who are experts agree happened and let's see who knows, uh, who, who does better, who's more reality attuned, who knows more about the past and then see how those are related to uh, perception or denial of racism in the present. So in the original studies uh, that we conducted, we had a test of um, history. We asked people about possible, a lot of different events, but the ones that are important for our purposes are the ones that sound like uh, incidents of racism in American history. Some of them were true. Some of them we made up. And and the reason for uh, doing this is to show that people are attuned. They're not just saying, okay, this sounds like racism and I know America is racist, so I'm going to say that this thing happened. We wanted to know whether they were familiar with the event. They're not just sort of pulling out a card to throw it down and say, this is racism. But, you know, I don't know, it sounds like it could have happened, but I've never heard about it, so I'm going to say false. That's the sort of thing that we're interested in. And, And we had students from from a predominantly white institution, and we had students from historically black colleges and universities complete this test. And we also asked them, uh, relevant to uh, Joel's point, we asked them for uh, to indicate the extent to which they felt like these group memberships were important to them. And then we had them complete a measure of their perception of racism in American society. And there are several effects that are relevant to the question. One effect is that, you know, of course, as I mentioned before, students from the HBCUs perceive more racism in American society than the students at the white university. And, and students at the white university were, produ- were white students. We didn't include students of color. And then um, beyond that though, regardless of where the student was from, if they performed well on our test, 
they tended to perceive racism in American society. So racism perception was associated with doing well on our test. If you take our test to be a measure of reality attunement, then it suggests that the people who are more reality tuned are the people who are saying there is racism, not the people who are saying there isn't racism. I mean, that might not be big news to a lot of people, but it's kind of uh, a way of saying, okay, no, this is sort of based in fact. And then the other thing, of course, is that the people in the historically black colleges and universities did better on our test. And this partly explained their tendencies to, to perceive racism. So we use the, the um, label Marley hypothesis because uh, there's a line in the song by Bob Marley and the Whalers, Buffalo Soldier, where uh, they say, um, if you know your history, then you know where you're coming from and you, you wouldn't have to ask me who the heck I think I am. Meaning that you know, if you um, understood the past, if you looked into the past with a kind of self-critical and objective lens and you, and you knew what was there, then maybe you wouldn't be questioning some of the claims that people are making or questioning their experience or questioning their need for uh, the kind of policies that they're suggesting. So that's, I think, uh, that's the basis of the, the baseline of the Marley hypothesis. And I think we'll probably talk about it more. Uh, I'll just note as we transition into further conversation that it calls into question then why is it? Or the important question for us, I think, that relates to the critical race theory, theory discussion is, why is it that people don't know about incidents of racism in the past? Why is it that folks don't know about uh, the Tulsa uh, massacre? And part of it has to do with these individual motivations, I think, but also part of it, as, as Joel and I think uh, dissonance theory is kind of locates a lot of the motivational process and in individuals and the conflict that they're, they're feeling based on group membership or otherwise. But as Annalise is saying, there's also this question of like, why, why do we know what we know? Why, how is it that power works to make some stories present and other stories not present? Uh, and that's a different kind of, still a motivation, um, but a different kind of motivation, a motivation that makes me, even if I'm relatively curious, maybe not able to know what I could have known otherwise. Yeah, I think listening to all three of you talk about it, and I'm, I'm going to what's happening across the country now in all these states, how then can we begin to, or can we, maybe the question is, can we even begin to move these legislators bent on ensuring that one, the erasure continues, right? Even though they are saying, well, as long as nobody feels discomfort, you can still teach the history. So how then, you know, given what you both know, what you all know about dissonance and, and the Marley hypothesis, how then can teachers and leaders in buildings and districts move the dial so that history can still get taught so that we don't have this recurrence, I mean, so that the dissonance doesn't play out the way it's playing out, right? So right now we're in this place where Annalise talked about in terms of power, right? This is a definite power move. We are definitely reshaping what kids will learn, how they will experience school. At the same time, it's built upon dissonance. So how can we turn the tables on this? Maybe that's the question. How do we turn the tables on this? Can I uh, say something here? You know, um, when I was in Tulsa for the 100th anniversary, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, I did a lot and a lot, a lot of interviews. And uh, what was brought uh, to my attention repeatedly uh, was, uh, were the words of uh, Mayor Bynum of Tulsa, who said, uh, why should people, who asked, why should people today pay the price or uh, pay money or, and it was really about a reparations conversation, uh, pay for something some criminals did a hundred years ago. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting framing, um, especially because no one was ever held accountable. And one uh, can uh, assume when one speaks about criminals, especially when, when we're talking about murder, there's no statute of limitation. So there was never really any uh, sincere effort to uh, bring to justice those who uh, you know, took the lives and livelihoods of, of so many. But my answer was always at that time when I was asked that question, 
why is it a matter of punishment? Why do you consider it a matter of punishment to help your neighbors achieve redress for a terrible grievance? Why not think of it as an opportunity to educate yourself and to be part of uh, true uh, reconciliation? I mean, they have a center there called the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation. However, I do have I do take pause because uh, with this, when we look at the South Africa example, we know without truth, there is no real reconciliation. There is no possibility for healing without truth. And uh, so coming toward it uh, from a perspective of healing, truth, reconciliation, opportunity to make your neighbors whole, I think that, um, you know, that was always my response because that's how I thought about it. Why wouldn't I, seeing someone who was aggrieved uh, and uh, someone who was suffering, someone who was in pain? And the question would be, do I consider them my neighbor? Do I consider them my brother? If so, if that's the case, why wouldn't you want to see them made whole? Why wouldn't you see, want to see them repaired? Annalise, I think that's a great point. And I think it does um, touch base with um, the issue of people experiencing cognitive dissonance and how they can work better to alleviate that, uh, that discomfort that they feel. Because when we think about um, truth, one of the truths that I or a member of a, the current white power structure of white Americans uh, one of the things, one of the truths that I may experience is that you're telling me that I have to be responsible for what my group did, and I don't want to be responsible for what my group did. And I am a proud member of my group. Uh, I'm a identify with my group, and to and to think about reparations, to think about um, um, talking the truth is a way that I have to implicate my own self as having done a bad thing because I identify with that group. So to say, yes, a terrible thing happened 100 years ago and I wanna make it better, my focus as a, people's focus unfortunately is to say a terrible thing happened many years ago and I am partially responsible for that. Um, what what I would and, and therefore cognitive dissonance the dis, the unpleasantness of cognitive dissonance tends to kick in automatically and say I'm not responsible for that it's a long time ago it happened it's over get over it let's let's move on um, a better way though is to say is to learn to say yes my group did a bad thing I am I I I, I, I I'm proud of my group I'm a happy member of my group I'm not denying my my, member, my membership and majority status, but my group did a terrible thing. I'm still a good person. What I need to do is help my group become better. That is what I, that, that truth isn't in denying the past, but truth will come by deciding that I can still be a good person, honor the fact that my group did a bad thing, and then do something to help my group become a better group like take responsibility for what happened, like try to make people whole. Um, these are the kinds of things we can learn to do with our dissonance, we just don't. And so in the, in the things that we can do with our dissonance and that we just don't, how then can we create a, an informed citizenry if all we're gonna continue to do is let our dissonance around group identity become the driver around that which kids are allowed to quote unquote learn and which they are not allowed to learn. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's partially at least in education uh, that is partially we have to teach um, people why they feel the negative reaction or at least one of the reasons they feel the negative reaction that they feel and that this doesn't have to be so. They can still be good people without having to with, 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 without having to deny the past, without having to, without having to deny the teaching of the past in the current curriculum, um, it doesn't have to be so. Now, that takes that takes time, and that and that takes effort, and it's at a level, it's one level more abstract, if you will, 
than dealing with the issue: should we, you know, should we teach? Um, what should we teach about slavery? Should we should we teach uh, in our curriculum more than the fact that Booker T. Washington existed? Do we need, you know, do we need to really develop the the history of of, of our country during these uncomfortable time periods? It's more. It's at a level more abstract than that. It's trying to teach people that it's okay to acknowledge that our group did some really bad things. And it's okay to think about how we can make reparations, psychological reparations, um, with more greater honesty to make things better. Um, that's a long haul. And unfortunately, sometimes it's easier just to uh, argue with each other. But I think that you know, educating to at least this, educating people to this phenomenon will at least help. Won't solve, but it'll help. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's easier to argue, and I think because of the power dynamics, um, it's easier to take the information off the table um, and pretend there is care for all children when there clearly is not care for all children because. Black and brown children have been feeling they have not been allowed the space or the care in their own dissonance to, you know, my family is not enslaved. My family is not currently living in poverty, but I'm part of a group that for whom large numbers are. No one is caring about my dissonance in that and nobody is caring about where I sit and stand in that. And so, you know, the idea it's, it's sort of like hypocrisy that we're talking about the care of children and we are trying to make sure students don't feel discomfort. Um, that's really a critical statement that has to be made because what we're talking about is white children's discomfort by being what you said, Dr. Cooper, a member of a group of people for whom their standing in the country right now was totally built on the near annihilation of one group and the labor the free forced labor of another group. Um, and so, you know, it's just really quite interesting. Um, and where do, where do we stop the cult, the dissonance? You know, where does it stop? Um, because you'll just continue to grow and keep going if discomforts the barometer. I can say one thing. I think that um, I'm not an expert on motivation, like Joel is an expert on motivation, but I do know that there are some people who make a distinction between uh, what you might call uh, self-evaluation motivations or wanting to see yourself in, in a good way and, and what we would call accuracy motivations. And sometimes those are in conflict. Like, I don't want to hear what I did wrong and I don't want to hear what I did bad, but sometimes I need that to get better. Like if you have a coach and your coach never tells you what you did wrong, how are you ever going to improve? So I think one way of addressing this is to, you know, challenge what people think patriotism is anyway. So rather than sort of pushing against uh, group identities, you know, expanding, definitely one thing is to expand the group identity, to expand group identities beyond this preoccupation of whiteness to a broader American identity. And that's a fight that's going to happen. And, and I'll come back to that. But the other thing is, you know, to, to run into, run with identity, because you're not going to get people to disinvest in identity very easily. But trying to challenge this narrative of what is patriotic, it's patriotic to learn things about the past in the country, not just glorifying things, but, you know, if you don't want to get overrun and outcompeted and, and do poorly, you're going to, you need to be reality-based and reality includes knowing what you did wrong so you can get better. Improvement requires knowing what you need to work on. And I think that's, you know, a hard sell, no doubt, but um, changing the conversation about what's patriotic and, and, you know, folks are trying to do that. The people I hear talking about a, a critical race theoretical perspective or other kinds of perspectives are saying, look, you know, in order to fix the problems we have, we have to uh, think about accuracy. Now, now, of course, part of the problem is that uh, we have, so why do we have such resistance to doing it? So there are some people who control power who are really invested in making sure that the stories don't come through. Why, you know, why they are is likely because that's the basis of their power, but it's also the case that you know a lot of people maybe that we're thinking about who show up at the school board meetings and also protest their kids being indoctrinated. They're picking this up from somewhere, uh, and they're they're taking it on. They're prepared to take it on, but they're also taking it on because it exists out there. And I think there's an important collective motivation issue here, which is that 
And sometimes we act on behalf of a group motivation that's not necessarily individually motivated. We may be motivated to know the truth, for example. I may be motivated to know the truth. I may be curious. But if the resources at my disposal, which are provided by other people, slant in a particular direction, then it's going to be more difficult for me to know the truth. And I think this is one more example in our country right now of this phenomenon that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, you could call it like death by whiteness, even for white folks. It's like white folks preventing themselves from living to the fullest because they are invested in whiteness as instead of invested in humanity. So, uh, you know, Metzl, I think Jonathan Metzl wrote a book based partly on things that he did in Kansas about people who are dying of whiteness because they prefer to argue against healthcare policies that would benefit them because for more racialized policies. But you can think of so many other things, including, you know, we look at things happening in the pandemic or so many other issues in our society right now. There's this kind of uh, uh, white folks trying to, I think, um, really in a kind of somewhat irrational way, not based in, in fact, we're having to discuss a war over what truth is. And, and a lot of that war over what truth is, is about uh, the fragility of, of whiteness in this particular moment. And I think we have to deal with that squarely as well so that we can come back to saying, look, accuracy matters, truth matters, even when it hurts. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, people somehow today think that we are so advanced. We are just as primitive as a, as a species as we've ever been. We are simply more technologically advanced. And so we have all of these um, tools and mechanisms for, you know, uh, helping people to align themselves with our opinions because we can reach out and reach millions of people with a tweet or whatever, these kinds of things. Uh, but we see um, uh, around uh, the public health crisis now that people will glom onto all kind, all manner of irrational thought and behavior, uh, even to, as you say, Dr. Adams, the detriment of their own personal selves. And and this is uh, this is that part of it is new. And so uh, we are we have this layer of technology that is enabling uh, the spread of these uh, you know, nonsensical ideas and notions that people are, are um, being um, inculcated with, but they are adopting it to, uh, you know, to their own detriment. But we're still the same people. We, it shows that we are still the same people that we've always been. We're prone to superstition, uh, rumor, and, uh, and uh, cult-like following. Uh, of of those who are unworthy uh, of, of our attention, and so you know, how do we how do we overcome that, especially for children who are uh, particularly vulnerable to uh, you know uh, being manipulated, uh, and, and there are people who are deliberately manipulating. Um, how do we um, address children who, if they can't get this information, the truth at school, which seems to be in peril right now, where do they get it? Um, you know, uh, Dr. Ellsworth talks about uh, trying to find information about the massacre. It had been ripped from newspapers, cut out uh, of, of the, the journals before they were microfilmed. I mean, people were threatened with death if they asked too many questions about this event. You know, this is, uh, you know, the past is prologue. What are we facing here with uh, children who will not have access to the truth? He says that uh, he, he got my great-grandmother's original volume from a library. He went there, he was asking questions, uh, going through the microfilm uh, and understanding that, uh, you know, whole sections of the paper uh, uh, from June 2nd onward uh, were, were just missing. And so with that kind of concerted um, effort, um, primitive though it was, because I mean, you can't just cut something out of a newspaper today, but the sentiment is the same. And so he was able to ask a librarian and she gave him uh, this, this volume, uh, which was the basis, he says, of all of his scholarship on Tulsa in the years hence. Um, and so what are the other mechanisms beside school that uh, will be available to young people who say, oh, what you're telling me is just not enough. Uh, I can well imagine, I, 
and all of it, most of us here have lived through the 60s, we understand that there is a counterculture that comes up when there is too much repression and young people want to know the truth. Um, and uh, what are the mechanisms for reaching them? What are the mechanisms for ensuring that they can, that, that the truth that they get is actually based, based in objective reality? We also know that, um, uh, you know, I, I was doing some reading recently. I can't, I can't think of everyone's name, but uh, a woman who teaches at uh, NYU, the Stern School, Batia Wiesenfeld. And she says that basically when the more powerful people are, and this goes to your point, Dr. Adams, uh, the less, the less um, ability they have to perceive objective truth. It is the least powerful who have the greater ability to perceive objective truth and probably because of survival. And so, you know, these are all issues and, and young people are facing this. I feel very I feel a great deal of compassion for young people trying to ascertain what the truth is when you have adults who are still arguing over um, uh, what I call hypocritical race theory. I just want to go back, Annalisa, because you've you've described a couple of situations past the so the Tulsa race massacre happened immediately after there was pride among white people. They had done this. They bragged about it. They were very open about it. But, and I believe this was in your afterword, unless I read it somewhere else, because I, I apologize. But I think this was in your afterword. The point, what happened then was there was widespread con condemnation of this horrendous act. And that's when this hiding happened and that's when they started cutting things out of newspapers so that people wouldn't know and they and they pretty much the power structure in Tulsa pretty much shut the conversation down do i have that right there were commercial consequences because they were trying to you know Tulsa was a booming oil town and they wanted people to come there and do business but people thought oh not in a place that does things like this uh, it was a, just a bridge too far i mean you know uh, Sometimes you have people who are not active participants, but, you know, they, they're uncomfortable by, by some of these, um, you know, violent outbursts. But, but, you know, they too are at risk. Let's just remember when the Klan was running Oklahoma, you know, it wasn't just Black people. It was Jews and Catholics who were targeted by these people. Even people who, uh, you know, uh, didn't participate uh, but who were expected to participate because of their racial profile, for example, you know, they could be targeted. They could be killed, too. And just before the massacre happened, I think a couple of years or so, a young white man was lynched in Tulsa. Um, the mob came and removed him from the jail and lynched him. They would string up anyone. And so, you know, these are people who are act actually beyond the pale of, of uh, any kind of normal civic interaction. Uh, but basically, when uh, when uh, commerce began to suffer, yes, that's when they began to 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 shut it down and to hush people up. I was giving them too much credit by saying they were feeling shame. It was there was no shame. Yeah, it wasn't shame. It was it was no, It was just it was economics. Economic. Okay, economics, and and it, it just put a bad face on the city. Uh, and also, you know, when we look back to the testimony that Mother Viola Fletcher gave before Congress. She says right then, you know, the Chamber of Commerce said right in our faces that this did not happen. So these people have had to live with, you know, the new it, the story being ripped out of the newspaper, the Chamber of Commerce, the local government, you know, the conspiracy of silence around that, and 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 uh, they're having to be quiet about it or else face repercussions because they were not uh, within the the power structure. Um, people ask sometimes, you know, beyond, you know, just we didn't talk about it because we didn't want to make our children suffer or we didn't talk about it because, uh, you know, uh, we were forced to into silence. You know, I think sometimes people uh, self-police about those kinds of things. If they think that it's going to be hopeless, uh, that they'll ever see justice, why talk about it and, and, and uh, recreate the trauma for yourself day in and day out? And, and some people obviously just went mad. Well, and, and that gets that gets to the point that Tanji was talking about, which is like, uh, will teachers be, and 
you know, and principals and educators in general, will they self-censor rather than dealing with this discomfort of other people? Um, Dr. Cooper, I mean, this idea that um, discomfort has to be relieved in some way or not created. I mean, will te- how should teachers think about this? Because this is this is the core, and they're now pre- they're now preparing their lesson plans for the fall, and they're deciding: shall I shall I introduce discomfort or shall I not? Well, I think there's, in my opinion, there's little doubt that they should introduce discomfort, uh, because discomfort is going to exist at the mere understanding that these kinds of events occurred. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable for the group that suffered, and it's going to be the group uncomfortable for the group that uh, created the, the, the suffering. But we have to learn to live with that discomfort in productive ways, rather than saying, it's your fault. It certainly wasn't my fault. I deny that it happened. It wasn't that bad. No, rather, it's to say, these things did happen. And we have to learn to transcend that and find a different way of dealing with that discomfort. And we can find a different way by trying to make life better for both the victims and the perpetrators going forward. We can make society better. Uh, White people can do a better job. Once we recognize what we did a long time ago, it doesn't, it's, it's not that I did it now, I am a group member, but it's not that I did it now. I can say, my group did a bad thing. My group is going to help make it better. Um, so I think we have to, I think we have, I think we can't be afraid of the discomfort. We just have to find better ways to deal with it. Yeah, I think we're talking about the power of and here. You know, this happened and this happened simultaneously so that we can help people balance it out. And, and of course, Dr. Cooper, you're correct that we have to deal better. However, when my job is on the line and someone's threatening to fire me or or find me because I am teaching the truth to change the world so that it can be the better place, the chilling effect becomes, you know, very real. And then when, how much discomfort, like where do we stop weighing discomfort? I read a story about um, in science class, that astronauts, adult astronauts wear diapers in space. Well, if I'm a child and the idea that adult wears a diaper is discomforting to me, do I not? Then the teacher can't teach it, right? So how far are we willing to go with the idea of what makes a kid uncomfortable? Because if I talk about science, science is gross. Like it's outright gross on some things, right? Like, can we just all admit that, right? But then where do we say yeah, this might be uncomfortable for you, but it's like, you know, when I grew up, we had to take Father's John every day from October to March. So I wouldn't catch a cold. Grossest thing on the planet, but I never caught a cold. Um, so how do we give students the Father's John and understand that, you know what? This is not about indoctrination. It is about learning who we are through the power of and. We, we are a nation who espouses liberty and freedom, and we did these things that were antithetical to it. And our school children will understand that message a lot better than the parents mm-hmm. who are the ones who are resisting. Yes, I agree. Agreed. Another point that I think is possibly important to make is that among the reasons why people, so, so we're focusing a lot on the comfort and, and, and the kind of uh, sense of people's self-worth or self-evaluation and, and why the knowledge of, of uh, past racism might be painful to them or why they might want to deny it. But there's also uh, evidence that when people know about the past, they not only uh, see racism in the present, but they also are more supportive of policies, reparative policies, particularly uh, things related to, say, for example, affirmative action, so there's a sense, you know, one of the, the, the more uh, sort of outcome-oriented motivations that people have, maybe not your ordinary person because you're not thinking that far ahead, but somebody who's thinking about where this information leads. If we're teaching things to people, what might happen as a function of them teaching? 
So a very similar issue was the uh, in Arizona, the state law that passed banning uh, ethnic studies programs. And the motivation for that law explicitly in the law was that this teaches uh, resent, this teaches racial resentment, not on the part of white folks, but on the part of the Latinx folks who are uh, having the this uh, ethnic studies program. It was having positive results and people were learning things. They were just learning things that people didn't want them to learn. Uh, and they prefer to learn this other narrative that serves a particular version of patriotism better. Uh, so there, so there is, uh, for not, not for everybody, but for some, the, the reason why we have the stories that we have are also often about uh, what kind of outcomes those stories promote or don't promote. Well, and we we had a conversation in the in the last episode about the stories we tell, um, the 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 histories we have. I mean, the history textbooks that uh, most high schools in the country use really tell this rather bland and you know whitewashed as kind of an overused word, but really whitewashed uh, history. Um, and om- th- it's almost universal. Some of them even uh, are copies of each other. And they they really are not real history. They're more stories that we tell children to make them feel better. In with the Marley hypothesis, you know, if they don't know the story, they can't possibly really see reality in the way that people who understand the history better do. And I should note, I don't think I mentioned it at the during telling the story, but you can talk about different kinds of racism. And there's a tendency in the United States among white folks, especially to define racism uh, as individual prejudice, because it sort of narrows the scope of what the problem is. And it also enables people to distance themselves from the problem. Uh, but the effects of identification or the group differences in perception of racism and the importance of historical knowledge for perception of racism are all accentuated for systemic manifestations over individual manifestations. That is, white folks still tend to deny individual manifestations of uh, prejudice uh, to a greater extent than um, uh, people of color, but the difference and the effect of historical knowledge and the effect of identification is bigger for perception of racism in systemic manifestations, like whether you think America is a racist country, as opposed to whether you think a particular action by a particular individual might be racist. I'm willing to admit that, but this other thing is much more important to my sense of uh, some important realities. And also what, what works for me in the world and how the world works for me and what policies might be enacted as a function of this knowledge to change that. And that's, that's a really tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. And there's a lot, and that's why there's a lot of resistance. Well, we've covered a lot, a lot of ground. Is there, is there anything we haven't covered that, that should be said? Any closing thoughts? That was a really good one, Dr. Adams. I like. I'd like to say that I listened to your first uh, podcast with uh, Dr. Ladson Billings, uh, and she said uh, that she thought that uh, guilt was a not a useful emotion. Um, but I have a bit of a different interpretation. I think that all of our emotions are useful. They tell us useful things. We simply have to be developed enough to uh, interpret them properly and to take some type of action. If it's a feeling. Uh, that needs to be uh, dispensed with, do something about it. Don't sit there and wallow in it. It's, your guilt is telling you uh, something's amiss and your own moral compass is tweaking you, know, you to action. Do something. You, 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 you can learn what to do about it um, you know, through the... I guess the coolness of logic and the warmth of literature, that's always my, my those are my go-tos. You can, you can find a path out of these things. You can take some action. There's, some, there's always something that you can do. There's always someone you can be of help to. And my great grandmother said, no group is greater than its least member. 
And as uh, Dr. Cooper said, you know, perhaps we have we have to make sure that we expand the definition of what our group is. I think you just closed us out. Nobody has anything more to say. That was a wonderful statement. Um, thank you so much. That wraps up the fourth episode of Ed Trust's new podcast, Ed Trusted. For lots of links to articles and resources, check out our show notes. I particularly want to urge you to go buy The Nation Must Awake by Mary Jones Parrish um, with an afterword by Annalisa Bruner. We want to thank Annalisa Bruner, Dr. Joel Cooper, and Dr. Glenn Adams for an amazing conversation. We also want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast, including but not limited to Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Karen Lomax, Jack Fleming, Keith Curry, and William Morgan, Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast. Our theme music is composed by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time. <laughs>